and welcome to Twig 268. Today, we have in the house Philip Black, game economist at Game Economist Consulting. Hey, hey. Eric Kress, principal at Gossamer Consulting Group. What is happening? Bring the energy. Here we go, everybody. Laura Taranto, <laughs> Senior Director of Product at Big Fish Games. Hi. There's some energy. Woo. And I'm Jen Donahoe, Strategic Marketing Consultant at Beta Hat and Jade Inferno. Howdy, everyone. Good to be here. Here we go. All right, we have a lot of shilling. Shilling mixed with updates. So let me cover a couple of things. So we have called the Istanbul Game Summit Think Games Istanbul event that is coming on March 7th. It has a second day, which is invite only investor summit on March 8th. So on the 7th, we are finally getting some details on how the day is going to be organized. So you might hear us talk about this a lot, but just to get the gist of it, there will be main stage speakers, keynotes, and fireside chats. After lunch, we're going to have breakout sessions. There'll be three tracks, a growth track, a product track, and a final track on pitching, building, and getting funding. So depending on what you want to sit in on, the cast here will be split up amongst each of those tracks. And so we'll get a chance to do more presentations and work with you kind of in a workshop environment. The link is going to go in the show notes. It's going to go in the newsletter. We'll put it in the events channel on our Deconstructor of Fun Slack channel. So you will hopefully not miss this. Although I still don't know what the hotel is that we're staying at. That would be great to know, but we'll get that soon. Think Games Istanbul. It is in partnership with Google, if I didn't already say that. So one more thing for me, speaking of events, I attended an AppsFlyer event on Thursday of last week at SNAP's headquarters. So thanks to Brian Murphy for that invite. First, just two quick things to take away. SNAP is on fire as a social media network, 400 million DAU, DAU, and that is well over half of its users are from Gen Z. So from a social network perspective, I think when I was working with them last year, they were only at like 3, 320, and they're already up to 400. So as a social network, it's still growing, especially with the younger market. So two other takeaways. Good news for UA folks. There's a deeper partnership between Snap and AppsFlyer. So typically Snap is an SRN, which is a self-reporting network. So that means that UA folks kind of had to go directly into the Snap dashboard to manually move things around. Now working with AppsFlyer, it's all interconnected. And so that's really going to help folks manage things better. And then the second news is Snap is introducing a ROAS UA product coming in Q2. This is super exciting. If you are looking to manage with ROAS, it's kind of hard to believe it wasn't there before. But with all of the things that they need to do with privacy, they're finally going to be launching that later on this year. So that's my stuff. Crest. Yeah, Mishka did an episode with Tom Wyman. Newzoo's lead analysts, and they were basically discussing predictions for console and PC market. And I have to finally acknowledge the fact that Newzoo has a new voice of reason, which had a very pragmatic view of the market. Mishka said that it's because he's from some part of Europe in which he's far more pragmatic in terms of his opinions, right? So there were absolutely no mentions of esports, no mentions of VR, no mentions of fucking cloud streaming future, none of that crap, okay, that they've been well known for in their history. And he also took a few shots at subscriptions, which, of course, is very, very intelligent, smart, and obvious. 
So it's worth a listen to in understanding the current status of the market and kind of a well-thought outlook. But if you're looking for sci-fi predictions like Mr. Matthew Ball or the A16Z McKenzie buzzword salad, you're going to be very disappointed, right? This is just a good, solid forecast and expectations of the market. So I highly recommend it. All right. Corrections. I think you wanted to talk a little bit about Match Factory and Zynga. Correct me if I'm wrong on this correction, Chris. I could have sworn we did this already, but on this Match Factory thing from Peak and Zynga. So the metrics look very strong, but of course, they're iOS only right now. And so they haven't released it on Google and they haven't scaled it yet. But having said that, looking at this particular product and assuming the rest of the portfolio does not decline precipitously, it looks like Zynga's back in action this year and will only decline about 5% versus the 20% for the last two years. So really good news for take two that this shit's finally stabilizing. But obviously, this game needs to scale to about you know over $100 million on app. Annie to make it make sense. But this is not Mice Nuts, Mrs. Laura Toronto. Thank you. Looks like it will not be Mice Nuts, but they got to get moving and get spending. So we'll see if they unleash the hounds on this game soon. I'm not going to rub it in your face too much because let's see if it surpasses 100 million. But one other small correction. So last episode, we were talking about Developer Direct. Visions of Mana was not announced there. It was just showcased. That was the takeaway. It was a comment on how Square and Xbox are showcasing was to, I don't know, signify a positive change in the previous Square and Xbox relations. Okay. All right. Quick hits. Here we go. Number one, Apple clears the way for Game Pass streaming on iOS. So we're going to get really deep into all of the other topics. But first, what's really interesting as part of the DMA happening is Apple announced new rules that will allow game streaming apps onto iOS devices. Microsoft has brought its cloud gaming service to PC and Apple platforms. As the company announced, the Xbox Cloud Gaming Beta, so just keep that in mind, is now available on Windows 10 PCs and iOS phones and tablets for all Xbox Game Pass Ultimate subscribers, all five of them. I'm kidding, Chris, because Chris is making faces, so... Who cares? It's got way too much press. No one gives a shit. No one's playing any of these Xbox games on a freaking small mobile device. I think that is going to be difficult. So in each case, users can access the service by going to xbox.com slash play on a Chrome Edge or Safari browser. So the thing is, you have to play this through a browser. So it's not an app you have to go through the browser. So NVIDIA GeForce was able to launch for iOS users, but it had to be accessed through the web browser instead of being used by the native app. So just something to note there. Epic plans to launch the Epic Game Store on iPhone this year in the European Union and is bringing Fortnite back to the platform along with it. Although I will say when this tweet went out by Mr. Tim Sweeney, it was before all of the details of how Apple is going to treat this. I imagine he is not very happy. I think a lot of choice words were said on Twitter. <laughs> I feel like Elon Musk and Tim Sweeney are combining for who has the most entertaining tweet storm going on between yelling at different people. The announcement comes after Apple shared how it will open up iOS in response to EU's crackdown on big tech. He called it hot garbage. That's not all that fun, but they are clearly not so hot as to keep Epic away altogether. 
Smartphone and tablets have replaced Nintendo as the entry point for gaming for the youngest players, according to a survey by the Magid Games team. So, Phil, you dropped this in here. Anything else you want to add? No, I think it's a real threat. I mean, it's always been looming as a threat for Nintendo that if you start to get raised on a mobile phone rather than a Nintendo device, you're not going to cherish these franchises as much. It always feels like it's been a threat. It always feels like it's been looming there. But this is a real change in the time series. And so I'm curious about kids who grew up with Roblox, if that becomes their mainstay, what do you look at as Nintendo? What's the nostalgia value worth? Oh, I have an idea. Nintendo should have a cloud streaming app on tablets and iPhones. Bring them in that way. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, Crest is shaking his oh, head. Oh, heaven help me. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to play Nintendo content on the touchscreen? Oh, my Lord. Okay. It's true. Investments in M&A. Actually, I hate covering these type of articles, just for the record, because it's total PR, IR, investor relations fluff. But Crafton is, like, looking to launch two more new games in 2024, and they have 20 games in development, which... It's kind of like the bullshit stat that Take-Two gave us where they had 94 games in development, none of which manifested into anything halfway decent. So I don't know what this means, honestly. But they have a long-term strategy to diversify away from PUBG. They want to expand on the PUBG brand. Guess what? They talked about AI and deep learning. Wow. I wonder where that came from, huh? They talked about India. Right, expanding their efforts in India with their esports, with their new game for the Indian market. So they basically got a lot of current buzzwords for gaming in one PR fluff press release. But the fundamental thing is they're trying to move away from the big PUBG and make a future for themselves outside of the PUBG franchise, which is good. But I think I won't get excited until I actually see something released that's good. The two games, though, that they did have that I did look up and actually do a little research is Inzoi, which is a Sims clone, which looks nuts. Very, very high. Looks nuts. It looks crazy, right? I heard it described as GTA meets the Sims. I was impressed. I was impressed. And then they have Dark and Darker Mobile, which looks like an absolutely terrible mobile game. I don't know what that is. That even that even makes sense in this market. So, But the Inzoi thing, which is a terrible name, by the way, looked insane. So that looks really cool. I would be excited for that. Dark and Darker makes quite a bit of money. If they grab this and do a successful mobile port, I mean... That's great. It's a PC game that they're porting to mobile? Is yeah, that what it if is? you're saying that they announced Dark and Darker Mobile, like they aren't the original dev of Dark and Darker Mobile, they'd be doing their own skew, their own spin. Oh, okay. It, is, is it looks like a PC game. That's why I was a little confused. Okay. All right, we'll see. We'll see. We're being cautiously optimistic. Okay. Sony made a strategic investment in African gaming startup Carry First, having hopefully to bring more PlayStation stuff to Africa. Good luck with that. Yeah, I dropped this in there because we talked about India Africa has been coming up a lot. Carry First has been coming up a lot. What I thought was new about this is they've been focusing on mobile. And so this partnership is with Sony a little bit on console. And so I know how you feel about these kinds of emerging markets, Mr. Kress. I like to just keep an eye on it to see where our trend's going. And this is the first time I heard about console in Africa being discussed. Yeah. And I actually don't know what the tariffs are. Like if it's like Brazil in which it's like a thousand dollars to buy a, a game or something, you know, but I don't know what the Africa thing is like. So I, it's interesting expansion of the console market. I'm all about it, right? Any way they can do it. So yeah, good. Hopefully that works. US-based mobile game company Talafa Games has raised 6.3 million in seed funding. Oh, they're the ones that create that Run Legends game. 
right? Like it was a mobile fitness game. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting category, like explicitly not gamifying fitness, but I would say taking a game and adding fitness. It feels like they're starting to come at it from the other angle. We saw Steppen, which was, of course, a Web3 monstrosity that had all of the problems that we'd normally expect <laughs> with any sort of, you know, fitness, Web3 and mobile is just a toxic combination. But I think this is a fun category. I'm curious to see whether or not this evolves into anything. I mean, Nintendo has always played in this world with Wii Fit. If you remember, like those things were flying off the shelves. They have one for Switch. It seems obvious that you'd want to try to extend this into some sort of mobile experience, but there, there seems to be a crossover. Hmm. Wow. Gamifying exercise is always good. I think we need more exercise in this world. How about that? All right. Helsinki Studio, Order of the Meta, has raised $3.3 million in seed run financing. Yes. So it's in development still, but it's going to be a PvP, PvE extraction shooter. Your favorite. Can't get enough of those, kids. <laughs> $3.3 million, though. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, you can make like a character, right? <laughs> well, it's Helsinki. It goes farther. Okay. All right. Layoffs, employment closures. Unfortunately, <laughs> this is a big week. And so we'll talk a little bit more about this later and kind of my expectations on the Blizzard side. But last week, part of the Microsoft restructuring, Xbox, ZeniMax, Activision, and Blizzard teams, they laid off 1,900 people. Yes. And Ibarra is now leaving Blizzard on top of that, as well as Chief Design Officer Alan Adam, who's been there for a long time. Along with these departures... They have canceled the six years in the making survival game, codenamed Odyssey. This was the survival shooter game. And it would have been their first game since Overwatch to be launched from Blizzard. Blizzard's new president was announced, Johanna Baeries. She was a former Call of Duty GM who was put as a GM of Call of Duty after a whole three years experience in video games. Maybe two and a half. Okay, so since she was the GM, so a very interesting hire there. And they are shutting down the eSports division. Sorry, Bobby. <laughs> Your billionaire friends are now <laughs> out of luck. So we'll talk about this a little bit later and have our comments. But the last one that is killing me for some reason, I don't know why certain things just really bother me, but Eidos Montreal, an Embracer subsidiary, of course, has laid off 100, almost 100 people from development, administration, and support service, and they canceled the Deus Ex project. Now, I am not a Deus Ex fan. Not at all, actually. I don't like that game at all. However, this fucking pisses me off, right? Because this team has been around for a long goddamn time, and they have been making great content for these particular audiences that love fucking Deus Ex, right? And because of the gross negligence and mismanagement by Lars and Embracer, they are getting dismantled. For what? For what? Like, what exactly has anybody gotten out of this? It's like almost criminal, like what Lars has been doing with this company. And I don't understand how he even has a job at this stage, given how, how much he's mismanaged and failed at this company. It's crazy. So I don't know. Just This is like, these are the type of things that drive me insane. Speaking of insanity, a lot of people also picked up on the Power World clone issue. You were talking about some of the models which look suspiciously similar to the Pokemon franchise models. And the Pokemon company looked at those two and said that they plan to look at whether or not, quote, a video game copied its character. So they never mentioned 
Power World directly. That would be beneath them. <laughs> and just to remind people, like, there have been tons of Pokemon-like clones. Power World is not the first one. Like, Temtem is one that's been out for quite some time. Like, that was an MMO that was clearly Pokemon-like. This isn't the first time. Digimon. Uh, Digimon's yeah. got a little bit of its own brand. Let's not cross wires here. You can't capture Digimon the same way you can Pokemon. If I'm repeating anything I said last week, I apologize. But let me just be clear on this point. First of all, Pokemon Company is Pokemon Company. It's not Nintendo, right? Nintendo owns part of Pokemon Company. They are their own beasts, the Pokemon Company. So it's not Nintendo suing anybody, right? If it was a Nintendo IP, they would sue the shit out of them, right? I'm telling you, if they were copying anything to do with Nintendo, I think we would already see the lawsuits happening. They would have never gotten a market, right? I just don't think Pokemon is as litigious, but Nintendo is fucking ruthless about their IP. So I don't know the validity of this. Everyone copies in gaming. I, I get that argument all the time, totally. But this seems a little bit more egregious in terms of the type of character models that they're using. But I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. So Square Enix and AppBot's mobile near title, near incarnation, is officially closing down with end of service set for April 9th, 2024. Data AI estimates it's made about 60 million lifetime which is actually not so bad for a franchise that started on hd as kind of like a single player experience end up picking up some revenue going over a mobile port we have enshrouded survival crafting is not dead it is here this game came out almost very similar to where power world was it got crowded out it's now having a little bit of its moment it's moved 1 million copies in early access it's a single player title in the survival crafting genre for the same price as power world about 27 dollars. it has been moving up the active user chart in steam it's really impressive to watch the premium revolution is at hand <laughs> and it will be televised <laughs> It's all about premium, dude. $30 games. Let's do this, right? This is the future. All I'm saying is like, you're building your arguments in quicksand. Bam, bam. You know, You know where the sails are blowing. <laughs> like, you can win all the battles you want. You know how the war is going. Like, CSGO is launching and then shrouded every single week in live service revenue. It's impossible to sustain. Anyways, <laughs> speaking of sustainability, Brawl Stars is way, way up from Supercell in the last four weeks by some $14 million to a total of $36 million. This is near all-time highs. Let's get back to this one. It looks like there might have been a huge jump in reactivations. We know revenue is up. We know active users are up, but it looks like there wasn't as big a jump in downloads. And if you remember from last week, the Brawl Star team was talking about scaling headcount, which is something that they've done. And they talked explicitly about just increasing quantity, which has been like a recurring theme here, is sometimes like the way to make more money and the way to win is to just make more widgets. And it looks like they're making a lot more widgets. We'd love to look closer at that. Hold on. First, down Downloads were up pretty dramatically over the last period, and we're starting to see it fall off again. So I, we do need to look into this and see what happened. I'm what curious to see what the story is. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure content is a part of it. Last week, we talked about them doubling down on the team size for this, right? Like yep. that they are making a concerted effort to try to grow it. And so isn't that pointing to, hey, maybe this was a good idea that they actually increased the team size? They increased the focus on it? Certainly. Like you're going to have short run increases in output. I think the question is, is like, what does increased team size do in the long run? It's supposed to add, I mean, the theory is that it adds sand to growth, that it becomes a bureaucracy. Decisions become harder and harder to make. Specs take longer and longer to produce. Like output ultimately per worker will go down. But in the short run, like you get more widgets. So it looks like they at least got more widgets, you know, if we put marketing dollars aside. 
Scaling teams, yes, there's a little bit more overhead, but the also idea is if you divide it in a way that makes sense, you're actually outputting more. It's more consistent. You're able to raise baseline revenue because you're able just to deliver more features. I would say the additional output would outweigh the overhead that it would add. In theory, yeah. That's the question yeah. of scale, right? Like, I mean, yeah. King is able to add employees profitably up until what, the 600th employee working on like the mainline franchise. And like, that's always the question for Supercell is like, how many people can you add to this game where the, you know, the nth headcount is still making you money and output? I just hope they give it a little bit of time because of this like scaling when they haven't scaled before, they're probably going to see a little bit of slowness up front. And I hope they don't write it off thinking, oh, this was a terrible idea. Just give it a little time to everyone to kind of normalize and adjust. I love how you speak like a total economist when you say that sort of thing. You know, the nth employee and how profitable. <laughs> it's like, there's, there's no creative. There's nothing creative about this business, dude. It's just about the nth employee and their ability to contribute to profit, right? I mean, there's beauty in that yeah. systems design. This is what you still don't see. There's beauty in all those things working and making sure that design functions. Uh, oh, there's beauty in making money. That's what I hear you say. Yes, the art of the deal, as we know. Oh, my Lord. Speaking of making money. Genshin Impact set the record for the fastest <laughs> mobile game to reach $5 billion. This is on iOS and Google Play, so we might be excluding some Chinese app store spend. It also doesn't include the PC and console numbers that we know Genshin had made a lot of money on, but only 40 weeks to reach $5 billion in global revenue for Genshin. The previous leader, which is Clash of Clans, which did it in 51 weeks, which, by the way, is also having a little bit of a revival. I just looked at the final numbers for Genshin and uh, Honkai this year, and basically... It's almost a one-for-one, one, right? So according to App Annie, of course... Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> Data AI, sorry. Honkai made about $600 million this year, right? And Genshin made 820 And so the $600 million was exactly the amount that Genshin lost between... 2022 and 2023. So it's 100% cannibalization. If you stack revenue, you're telling me it's like a consistent time series? Yes. Oh my God. I mean, what yeah. a failure. <laughs> I mean, that's huge. I mean, what they spent on marketing and fixed costs to get stable revenue, essentially. The trade-off. I mean, we're hearing crazy <laughs> launch marketing budgets for Honkai. Yeah, yeah. And all of that revenue did nothing. When we talked about it, it was between three and 500 million in UA estimates that could have been used to promote Honkai. So they are potentially net negative. Right. On the P&L. On the P&L. Yeah, like on the yeah. uh, overall P&L for 2023? Possibly, Possibly, yeah. Anyway, it's interesting case study, and we'll see how it evolves over time. We got to define profitability, of course. <laughs> That's really important here. You, I knew you were going to bring yeah. that up, dude. <laughs> moving All right, on. Moving on. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, 
The fact is, we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity game framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. Apple's core technology fee explained. Okay, so I'm going to do my best to summarize what we know. Although this morning, there was a really great TechCrunch article by Sarah Perez that has bullet point by bullet point facts about what you need to know. So go reference that. I'll try to summarize some of the bigger stuff. So in case you haven't heard, this is not nearly as exciting or as emotional as the Unity runtime fee fiasco from last year, but it's a close second. The change in Apple's rules in response to the DMA coming in March, and so again, this is the European Union's Digital Markets Act. So what we're talking about only affects Europe. This is not for the US or other regions. And so this is specifically for that region. So this is all coming with iOS 17.4. Users will be able to download new App Store apps from a services website and set them as a default, which is kind of interesting. So the first app, the App Store, will be subject to all of Apple's rigorous checks and their new scare screen. So this is pretty funny. I think you've seen this before when Epic does this on Android. You can see the, wait, if you go here, we don't take any responsibility. You could get viruses. You could be shot and killed. I, I'm just kidding. But it is a scare tactic that they use when they send you outside of their ecosystem. So all apps are checked and scanned by Apple for malware, and only one version of each app is allowed to exist across all app stores. This is Apple's way of keeping version control going. Apps that are delivered via alternative app stores and opt for an alternative payment system will pay a 17% commission to Apple. So this is down from their 30% cut, though, if you qualify as a small business, you get a 10% rate. So there, there could be a little bit less. However, if you choose to use Apple services for receiving payments through Apple IDs and accounts, there is a 3% processing fee on top of the 17 or, or on top of the 10%. So you could be back up to 20% if you're a larger app. Again, down from 30. However, those are the fees that you have to deal with. So. This piece is what is really similar to the runtime fee. So Apple is introducing something called the core technology fee, which charges developers 50 cents per annual app install once an app passes 
1 million annual installs. Okay, so here's where it super gets interesting is, yes, you have to get past a million installs, but this number is triggered annually. So if somebody reinstalls it a year later, or potentially even if they just keep it on their phone past a year, the developer could be liable for the 50 cent CTF fee, core technology fee. So also Apple estimates that 99% of developers will reduce or maintain the fees they owe to Apple and that less than 1% of developers would ever pay the core technology fee. Apple learned from Unity and they offered a nifty online calculator that isn't at all confusing. I tried to play in it and I was already like, oh my God, this is super confusing. There's a lot going on here. So that's the best I could do to try to summarize it. Crass, I know you're gonna get into a lot more detail here. I think that <laughs> we're heading in a direction that is going to be not very good for Apple, I think, in the view of the European Union. I think there are gonna be some more lawsuits coming. All right. My opinion is like, this is Apple at its finest, you know, like heads you lose, tails I win type thing, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, you got to respect it, right? They're how deviously clever they are to abide by the letter of the law, but clearly not the spirit of the law. And what else would you do if you were Apple, right? As Apple, as the evil geniuses that they are, they're going to do whatever it takes to control and to maintain their revenue streams, right? I have to say this again, this is regulatory capture for the big, right? Because only the big are going to be able to deal with this freaking nonsense, right? They're going to have the resources to manage the relationship with the stores or build their own stores or whatever. It helps companies like Epic and Microsoft who have those resources. So again, Epic will be publishing Fortnite in Europe, right? As a response, not happily, right? But they're doing it. I'm assuming that most people are just going to opt to stick with Apple and just ignore this nonsense because it just seems like more complicated than necessary. And maybe some of the bigger publishers go direct, but if it's one or the other, I think they stick with Apple. And, you know, the runtime fee obviously seems like a big fuck you to the DMA, right? Like it's just a, simply a way to get paid instead of paying 30% cut, right? Again, any runtime fee is like a huge challenge because there's only a small percentage of the people that actually pay in apps. Like people have to understand that we're still talking about 3% conversion in most apps in the UK, in Europe and US. So it's like they continue to go after hyper casual, right? They're continuing to show how much fucking they hate yeah. hyper casual. And that's the only thing I think I, I have in common with Apple, right? But also in other companies that focus on advertising, right? So yes. they're the ones that are going to suffer, right? Because they're going to have to pay this fee, right? Or just stay where they are, right? The fee is actually, in my mind, targeted at the ad companies who, so Apple doesn't get a cut of advertising, right? So this is actually their sneaky way in to say, hey, hyper-casual or hey, ad-driven apps, here's how we're going to start making our cut of that because they've not had the benefit of any of that. So this is, to me, snuck in against that target. Right. And so like Voodoo, for instance, can't create their own store and start shoveling shite all over the Europe, right? Because they're going to have to hit this runtime fee, right? So that kind of precludes them from doing, you know, their evil business, right? But, you know, I think it's actually kind of clever of Apple, I have to admit. Like, I think it's a clever way. But it, what's ironic, though, is that we already saw like the results from what Unity did. So like, clearly, they didn't give a shit, right? Uh, how much backlash that Unity got, it just went for it, right? So 
it just kind of shows like how kind of arrogant and how like they don't give a fuck, right? And they're going to do what they want to do. It's just Apple, right? But again, I think this feels like more like business as usual for the majority of publishers. And maybe I'm wrong on this and I'd love to get feedback from any of y'all. And that, you know, again, the big may start to control their own fate in iOS and maybe reduce some of their fees, but not by much at all, right? And then the other point is that, and this is something from Lewis from the Deconstructor Fund community kind of pointed out relatively eloquently, as he is, is that you're either one or the other, right? And so I'll just read his quote. So the more I learn about Apple's new business terms, the clearer it is meant to dissuade you from accepting them to keep you on the classic terms. Turns out that if you accept the new terms of the agreement, you can't go back to the old terms and it affects your whole organization, not a single game and possibly even your parent organization if your company belongs to a bigger group. If you don't switch your whole org to the new terms, you can't distribute any game on an alternative app store or directly to your players. If this is not anti-competitive behavior, I don't know what is. And and this is the big point. You go this way and then you're done with the other, right? And so I just don't think there are going to be many people that are going to go this way, except for those that are like, like Epic, who are already off the store, right? So this is actually helps them. Anyway, so this is an evolving situation. We'll see how it goes. I have a feeling that DMA may come back to them with this fucking runtime bullshit. But overall, I don't think this is all that good for anybody, except for Apple, right? Of course. I was trying to explain this to a friend not in gaming yesterday. And one of his first questions was, so... You know, I understand this like 50 euro cents runtime fee, but if the user uninstalls after a million, do you get a do you get a refund for that? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. I'm hoping this will change a little bit of shape over time. But what kind of what you touched on just now, no one has a crystal ball. And like game forecasting isn't so hard. Like most companies don't do it particularly well. I mean, It's a combination of art and science. I think that if any company was going to determine whether or not it made sense to build out an app store, market it, and then figure out what your fees would be and what your projected downloads and installs and therefore spend would be, like just most people just won't want to do it. Only the big guys will be able to have that team that's going to have the experience and kind of the power to be able to do that. It's an enormous amount of math. I almost feel like Apple looked at Unity and that the whole runtime period, they're like, this is a great idea. We should totally do this. But the second thing that came to mind was when we were talking about the availability of great games on the last twig, all I could think of was, great, developers can make their own stores. Let's say you did the math and you were like, oh, this is a great idea. You could release an entire catalog of games that may or may not adhere to the rules of what apps consider quality content. Are we going to be flooded with not more junk, but more things that don't really add to the what we consider in design and product is, you know, great player experiences. The other thing is that for those games that are not necessarily, you know, top cream of the crop, you make a game, you spend all this time on it, you release it. Like one thing that Apple ends up being sometimes helpful with is when a clone comes up, they can take it down from the app store. You can say, Apple, this is a clone. Here's my case. This needs to come down. I don't know how they're going to police how that would actually happen for third party stores. And it's going to be interesting to keep track of the clone business. And maybe that makes it more appealing. The one other interesting thing I saw was not only Tim Sweeney's comments, but Sarah Bond, the president of Xbox, weighed in on X or Twitter 
And she wrote, we believe constructive conversations drive change and progress toward open platforms and greater competition. Apple's new policy is a step in the wrong direction. We hope they listen to feedback on their proposed plan and work towards a more inclusive future for all. A Tim Sweeney smackdown without the flair is what I have to say there. And so, like, listen, I know that, you know, you're executive of Microsoft, you're at a public company, you're a woman, you're a woman of color. She has to be super diplomatic about what she says publicly. And I'm sure that 10,000 PR people, comms people and legal reviewed that post before it went up to make it that watered down smackdown. But the fact that they even said something is a thing, right? Like normally they don't say anything. Yeah, right. So I took the watered down version as a actual big statement coming from them. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. Like this is a big fuck you to the DMA. Yeah. Apple is just like, we don't give a shit what you say. We are going to do whatever it takes in order to maintain our control. Come back at us, right? They're a bully, right? And they're not backing down. Yeah. Right? And so we'll see what happens. And I think the DMA has done a great job of coming after these guys. So maybe they will have round three and four, you know, on this. Yeah. But we'll see. Hey, game devs. Are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iPhones, frames, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. Speaking of Microsoft, I'm actually a little shocked that Sarah came out and said something publicly on this after last week's very sad news. You mentioned it earlier about the Microsoft layoffs. It happened like right after we got off recording the podcast last week. So I think it's time for us to dig into that sad news. The quick details here, Microsoft's laying off 1,900 people from Activision Blizzard and Xbox, as well as some people from ZeniMax and Xbox Corporate. I think I just said that. It's about 8% of the Microsoft gaming division, which stands at 22,000 people, just to be clear. And along these layoffs, Ibarra, Mike Ibarra has left the company at Blizzard. Mike was at 20 years at Microsoft, and he was part of the Blizzard organization 
decided to leave the company after this acquisition was completed. Oh, also Alan Adam is leaving, who's a chief design officer and one of the co-founders of Blizzard. And then obviously this survival game has now been canceled and they're moving their players on to other things. And alongside this announcement, we said Joanna Ferreras is now the new president of Blizzard. So first thing, I want to say the unpopular thing, right? In any acquisition, and particularly of an acquisition this size of two independent operating publishers, there will, and I would argue, always should be layoffs, right? To reduce redundancy in marketing, ops, HR, finance, and other central services, it makes total sense of organizations of these size to have some redundancy and to get rid of folks, unfortunately. And also, there's also this notion that once you acquire a company, you can assess the current products and development and things that they're working on, things that are redundant for what you're doing, et cetera, and cancel these projects that don't make sense. So I'm not surprised, honestly, at the layoffs. I would think that it could have been a lot worse, right, in terms of the number of people. But nonetheless, it was kind of expected. And so that's kind of my official take on the layoffs at Activision Blizzard. But what I'm really concerned about is the future of Blizzard here. And this has been echoed across the Slack, but also personal notes, et cetera, and as a huge fan of Blizzard, I'm not really too sure that this whole thing puts them in the best position. And this is kind of my thinking here, right? First of all, by all accounts, John of Fairies is a nice person. I've heard this from numerous people, but I'm not really too sure she has the chops to lead a creative organization like Blizzard to keep teams motivated to build new products. She is a marketing person from the NFL. She has 10 years experience at the NFL. When she was put in charge of Call of Duty, I said earlier, she literally had three years of experience in gaming. She was the GM of Call of Duty after three years of experience in gaming, which is frightening, right? And frankly, the execution of Call of Duty has not been all that good, right, over the last three years, in my estimation. Maybe probably not her fault because she hadn't been there long enough. But nonetheless, becoming head of Blizzard just seems like a huge stretch for someone with her background because, as Jen had said earlier, Blizzard is like a cult. Like, it's not a normal organization, and I think it'd be very challenging for an outsider to come in and manage that organization. Number two, the canceling of survival game is not a surprise, right, to some degree. I've heard that it was not in great shape. There's a lot of starts and stops. But what my concern here is, what else do they have? Like, what else are they working on at Blizzard, right? They don't have anything that I am aware of, correct me if I'm wrong, that is actually new or even with their established IPs. They have basically Overwatch, WoW, and now Diablo, right? Number three, I am a huge fan of WoW, right? And I have actually really good friends that are out working on this franchise as we speak. And I want to see a resurgence, you know, because hope is eternal, but I just don't see that WoW is going to do this, right? I think people have moved on, right? They're doing other things. And while the core nerds like myself will always come back, I just don't see that as a growth vehicle for them. I mean, I didn't even mention Overwatch because I think it's DOA, but like, correct me if I'm wrong here. I mean, maybe they can figure out a way of breathing life back into this. It wasn't even worth a mention in my opinion, but you know, I could be wrong. But Diablo is my biggest concern, right? Because as expected, engagement is through the freaking floor on this game. They will see some uptick from an expansion this year, no doubt. There is nothing that they have built that is keeping people engaged and spending with this product. This is exactly what Philip and I predicted with this stupid expansion pack mentality, right? The end game design does not have monetization design, does not lead to long-term engagement and spending, right? It's an old school expansion strategy. That's not going to cut it in 2024. 
right? And this is my problem. So my concern here is that the team is absolutely massive at Blizzard, right, for this game. And the revenue is not going to justify keeping such a large team. So I think we'll see a resizing of this team after release of next expansion. So again, where does this leave Blizzard, right? They have declining franchise. They have overstaffed live teams. There's nothing in the pipeline. They have inexperienced leadership. At least we have Metzen, right? Metzen is back, so that's good. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I don't know. What I would hope was that after this turmoil that was, you know, during Bobby and Kotick and Armin era, that the organization would be in better shape. But the setup does not look good, in my view, for Blizzard. But if anybody has alternative views, please let me know, because I'm just, you know, I'm just ranting here. I don't really know all the ins and outs of what's going on at Blizzard these days, but it seems scary. Any other thoughts out there? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm alternative. I actually agree with you on a lot of this. First is, I don't like that we were right about this, but anytime there's an acquisition, we talked about in the past, if you're a part of a central team, accounting, legal services, even marketing, even publishing, watch out, like start looking for another job as soon as that happens, because the chance of when the deal goes through, you losing your job is very high. Like my heart goes out to all of these people. That's why in the future, this is the warning sign. This is the red flag for you to look for something else just in case you do lose your job. So anyway, I also have really mixed feelings and I hope I can articulate this next point in a very nuanced way, because from a diversity standpoint, I am super thrilled to see another woman, a woman of color, promoted to a killer job in the game in the industry. Like, this is just amazing. See above, we talked about Sarah Bond leading Xbox. Like, love that. At least she has some experience inside the game industry leading COD and then COD Esports and then COD. However, as someone who has seen so, so many leaders come and go across the game companies, I'm going to say that it's a really tough job. And... In a perfect world, what I've seen be successful might not be what things are stacking up to be. So let me try to talk a little bit about what I think is leads to success as a leader in the games industry, just as someone who has seen this. So first is you really need someone who spent like a large part of their career in games. And starting from kind of a junior level, you had to have been on a team, you had to have like been a grunt worker who is kind of put in your effort and paid your dues so you know how the nuts and bolts get fastened to make a great game. And so my boss, Chip Lang, I talk about him all the time. So he hired me at EA. He was my origin story into gaming. And he's one of the founding marketing guides on EA Sports. And so he and Frank Jabot, and we talk about Frank all the time. So Frank is the CEO of Zynga today. They were roommates and they were QA testers at EA. Like that's how they got their entry into the games industry. And now these guys are like super leaders 25 plus years later. So I encourage that folks work directly on a game or a dev team. And you can be a marketing or a business folk and be successful as a leader of one of these organizations. Like I know you called out her being a marketer. Many of the marketers can be successful if you have had that time together with your dev team. What I have seen not work so well is non-business savvy developers who elevate sometimes don't make it because they don't understand how to match up the creativity of game making and the art of game making with Phil, what you were talking about earlier, the love of money. And how do you bring those two things together? So all of this to say, well, I'm like super supportive of more women in leadership. 
This feels like a challenging road for Joanna. I hope that Blizzard is putting massive support system behind her and that all of the trusted people that are still left at Blizzard are there to help level her up. She risks being a scapegoat in one or two years and labeled as an outsider who doesn't conform to Blizzard culture if she doesn't have the help and the support of the people of allies that are in Blizzard today. So, you know, Crush, you mentioned it like Riot is a cult, Blizzard is a cult, and I say cult kind of in a good way and it does have some downsides, but this is why Riot elevated Dylan to CEO and why they didn't hire from the outside. Dylan is one of the OGs, he gets the culture, because culture and creativity are the most important things for these types of companies, more so than revenue and operating profit. You got your CFO to do those things. Your CEO, your leader has got to be your visionary, your inspiration. And so in my humble opinion, the lesson for VCs or founders, anyone who's looking to pick their leader, they need to understand the specific culture needs of the company, be laser focused to find the right human that delivers against that really specific need. And so I don't know if Blizzard made the right call or not, but looking at the experience and the resume, I just know that this is going to be a challenging road. So if you're at Blizzard, please go help her out because I don't know if she can do it without the support of people really getting and rallying behind and being like, listen, I'm going to level you up. I'm going to introduce you. I'm going to indoctrinate you to the cult of Blizzard. Can we just say Blizzard is dead? Like it's over? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I think we should just like have a funeral on this podcast. Like it's over. And you know what? I'm not even sad. And the reason I'm not sad is because we have Dreamhaven. Has anyone heard anything about Dreamhaven? I feel like they've been cooking. Nothing. I haven't heard jack shit. This is where all the founders of Blizzard went. And they took literally all of Blizzard with them. So there have been so many employees yes. that I've known that have left Blizzard. It's not the same people anymore. It's a new wave of people. And so you have founders that have left to go do their own startup. They've taken all of the elder employees with them. There's a new wave of people coming to Blizzard, which can sometimes be a good thing. Sometimes you need those new perspectives. You were criticizing, Eric, the suits that Bobby always seemed to have around the office. I don't know. Apparently, like he always had McKinsey consultants in like a corner scoffing at Blizzard decisions. Of course. But they're all gone. And I think we're better off for it. Like whatever Dreamhaven is going to do is certainly going to be interesting. I'd love for them to share anything with us about what it is they are actually doing. But they have like, what, three studios underneath them. I have a good Game Economist friend over there. Second Dinner has created Marvel Snap, which was awesome. That was something they would have never gotten to do at Blizzard. Frost Giant exists and will do something related to RTS. Good luck. So like we've gotten all these spinoff companies, which are great. We've gotten mobile games from Blizzard. That's also great to see, but it's gone. It's dead. It's over guys. Blizzard is gone. They've moved on to other things. I would love to see Microsoft open up the vultures on these IPs. I'd love to see King take a swing at something dumb in Blizzard's portfolio. I'd like to see, you know, the coalition do something. Let's open up these IPs. Let's not get territorial. Let's see how much we can pump in terms of revenue out of them. There's certainly more work to be done. Overwatch is in a really poor state. We know that StarCraft is dead. Hearthstone is immaterial. Rumble didn't do anything. I mean, all they really have is Warcraft right now. Like all you're looking at is upside. Like what do you have to lose anymore on this property? Like it's never going to be what it once was. Like roll the dice a little bit, do something with these beloved franchises. Don't let them die because of lack of content. That would be the saddest of all. I feel like this is their YOLO moment. <laughs> no, but again, like why would you put someone like Joanna in this situation? 
that is very silly. It's, it's ridiculous. Jen just said, it's like, you want to maintain culture. You want to maintain all of these things. You want to maintain creativity. Is this executive aligned with that hire? It's not at all. What they should have done is they should have gone and go hire Jeff, who is the leader of Overwatch and said, congratulations, you run Blizzard now. Figure out how to do your shit. If you want to do something like bring back an OG and instead what they've done is the opposite. And I don't know if you have any details on why Mike left Eric, or if it was a pushing out, but like the old guard is gone. It's over for them. Like who's going to carry the torch and new employees? He left voluntarily, evidently. He was not pushed. So that's one person telling me, I, so I don't really know for sure. My job is to figure out what's really going on. So I'll get some good insights and let you guys know, but it doesn't look good. It just does not set up well at all for the future of Blizzard. And I don't know where I'm wrong on this, but we'll see. Yeah. The sad part is they should have made that survival game. Like, it's a shame that they're saying six years to get something like this out the door. I mean, we keep talking about survival crafting games at the top of the hour because they keep selling units and there hasn't been a big entry yet. So stop making extraction shooters, turn everything to survival crafting. That's where it's at right now. And no one's taking a big swing at this yet. Right. And the magic of Blizzard is taking games that have worked or that are working and perfecting them and making them more mass market. Right. Action RPGs, MMOs, Hearthstone. It's like over and over again, they've used their IP to expand the market for these particular genres. And I thought the survival game made sense. Right. So the fact that they can't execute it is probably more of an indication of the lack of creative leadership that they've had their entire history that are all gone because of Bobby and Armin. Right. The evil dictators that they are, particularly Armin. Armin's got, Armin has, has gotten a, is a fucking free pass on this bullshit. You know, everyone's demonizing Mr. Bobby, but Armin was the real evil in the Blizzard case. There was this quote that Ilka, I don't know if he ever made it officially, the, the CEO of Supercell made a long time ago, and he was really frustrated when Gardenscapes came out because he thought that should have been Supercell. That's the type of innovation that should have happened at Supercell. We should have been able to take a match three core and add sort of those elements to make that game, which again, it goes back to the thesis of Supercell. It goes back to the thesis of Blizzard. They're really good at taking things which have interests that have demand stripping them down to their core mechanics, polishing, and then shipping. And it felt like survival crafting was exactly going to be the game where they went out and did this. And it's exactly what they should have done with auto chest, by, by the way. I would have loved to see them take a stronger shot at that. But like, this is what happens when you scale. Like, like you just end up looking in the rear view mirror and like, could this have been us? Could this have been us? And I just really hope that in the future, like if someone strikes out of the park with one of these survival crafting games, like Blizzard is going to be kicking themselves saying like, wow, that could have been us. Like just the flame of what is once passed. It's just really sad that they can't tackle these ambitious ideas anymore. Yeah. Well, maybe Joanna's their Ted Lasso. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Some executive from fucking the NFL, which is like the biggest old boys network ever. I mean, they don't know fuck all about games. Lord, they didn't you know? win. It's like, come on. Ted Lasso man. didn't make them win. And NFL's like, made them feel better. Win. Made them feel better. And they did. Put, I mean, they got better. They didn't they like take home the cup, but they got better. Uh, and it was football. <laughs> and, well, yeah, it was a sport, right? Uh, I mean, but you know what? This is real life. That's a TV show. Just reminding you, okay? <laughs> yes, on TV, anything could happen, you know? It's make-believe. <laughs> All right. Oh well, we have one more thing. And so let's transition to something from the ABK acquisition that likely is not dead. Laura. No, it is not dead. And it is super exciting. Okay. So we know that King released Candy Crush 3D and Candy Crush Blast. 
you can't look at these games as one-offs. You have to look at them together. And then you're like, aha, I understand. So first, kudos to King for releasing new games and releasing them in this way. The Match 3D game, just as a quick summary, this is like triple Match 3D, like you're picking up stuff with like a trough at the bottom and you have a limit of six you can pick up. And then the Candy Crush Blast is just a new Blast game with, and both these games have basically the candy assets that we all know and love. If you play them, you kind of realize they're very polished prototype slash vertical slices. They use the same meta. Once I played both, I was like, aha, it's the same meta. This meta is really lightweight. There's no building. There's not even a store. Like it is, there's no leaderboard. It's basically what I would call like a skeleton meta. And you can basically swap in and out any type of engine you want to quickly test. And it's very focused on what core mechanics are going to work in what markets. I love that they're taking a new approach. Absolutely love it. If you think of the last kind of big games they released, like Crash Bandicoot on the run, that went out as a full game. I'm from the outside looking at this as they've taken learnings. They're like, how do we get something out? Test a core mechanic quickly, cheaply, not release a full-fledged product before investing a lot of money into it. And they're able to basically wager a lot more and start testing a lot more. This is just the beginning. I think that over time, with the small team, they're going to invest on creating their skeleton meta, making it more robust. And they're going to be using this as a test bed to figure out now how can they not only be one of the biggest developers reinvesting in live titles, but also I think they have their sights on figuring out what the next wave of core mechanic is going to be. This is just the beginning. Mm, super interesting. So if I understand correctly, did they do what Match Factory did? Like the challenges that I had when we talked about Match Factory, I don't know, a month or two months ago was that it felt like it had no meta. It felt like it had no like long-term retention features. And then for me personally, it was that time pressure mechanic. And that might just be a personal motivation challenge. I don't like feeling under pressure in my games. Although I will say that from the beginning, games like Diner Dash, which were the restaurant time management games, are a segment that really appeals to this audience. So I think I'm confusing my personal motivation. So is that kind of what you saw? Like, what did you see against that with what you saw in the Candy Crush stuff? So with Candy Crush 3D, at least, which is the comparison to Peaks Match Factory. Okay, so Match Factory has live events. They're a full game. Oh, they are an absolute okay. full game. Now, the meta in terms of itself, no decorator. They haven't built that out. So that part's similar. Other big difference, since you asked, what I like about the Candy Crush 3D is they're doing interesting things with the boosters. That is where I feel like they are leaning into testing. They are trying new things. This is purely an engine play. And if the things start to work, I expect the two games to draw from each other. I imagine King will probably invest in this meta, put in some live events. Let's get some basic things going. And then Match Factory might be looking at what King is doing and saying, ah, I like what they're changing in the core gameplay. We could add the same new boosters that they're using into some of our games. So, I mean, they're very different stages. Match Factory is very polished. It is a proper play. As Eric mentioned earlier, they do need to scale it. I wouldn't be surprised if they have in their roadmap something that expands their current meta, which is literally, it's nothing. It's just the live events and the leaderboard. But yeah, I think I am very bullish to see where King goes with this. Nice. Why Blast okay. though? Like Blast, I feel like we know what the revenue ceiling for Blast is. 3D is new. It's a new meta. It's a new mechanic. Everything is new. new. We don't know what the ceiling is. We don't know what's going to happen to Match Factory. There's been a million kind of riffraff 3D match games. If you just go into the app store, they're littered everywhere. 
instead of blast which has been around as a mechanic for a while why wouldn't you go with something like tile it feels like those are the things that are vying right now to grow casual are those two entries which are new still have like a lot of core gameplay differences there's a lot of new things you got to build for them but blast we already we know what the ceiling is for this it's not like we woke up and a million people just discovered like the blast mechanic is like oh shit why haven't i learned about this beforehand like why do they think they're going to win now at blast i wouldn't be surprised if they're building a tile engine. I have no idea. I'm just saying, but I would not be surprised if in a couple months they released a tile match engine. Has there ever been a match company that's owned two games across two different core mechanics, like a swiper and a blaster? Besides King? Yeah. I mean, King has owned like the suite of all of them. But they haven't been successful. They haven't owned two successful games of two different mechanics. Who does Gardenscapes? Playrix. Playrix? They have Grid Merge now. You could argue that Grid Merge is a different core mechanic that's integrated into some of their games. So Township has a fully-fledged events loop that has a grid merge mechanic. Depending on a slice and dice that, we could say Playrix has done that. For the Y King is going into Blast. I mean, it depends how you look at opportunity. I look at opportunity and Blast has not been revitalized since Peak came in initially. Yeah. Yeah. So I read that as opportunity. If you can come in and find an angle, and King has experience in it. They had a Pet Rescue Saga. That was a collapse mechanic. That was a Blast collapse mechanic. So they have the experience. They have history in it. And they have a market that's probably waiting for a new game. I mean, Wonder Blast was great. I really liked it. I still think they need to work on that game. They were innovating on how the core engine of that works. If I was king, I would say, hey, we have the history. We could probably come and why would we let someone else figure out how to innovate in a space that we used to own before Peak came in? Well, if you'd like product talk, Laura and I are going to record a first product deep dive on Whiteout Survival and... Oh, it should be survival crafting, Phil. You should join. I'm just kidding. It's a 4X strategy game. I only do Web3 these days. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So we're going to put that into the feed probably early next week. So look out for that. Maybe we'll talk about Matthew Ball's new epic article, which was so big, you couldn't even fit it in (laughs) ChatGPT to summarize the (laughs) motherfucker. But maybe we'll talk about that next week. Bye, everyone. All right. Bye, guys. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.